it's crunch time. Not the only uh, crunch moment in Luke's Gospel, but actually uh, Luke, Matthew and Mark all agree that uh, the moment that we've been reading about is a crunch moment, a crucial moment in the development of the Gospels, in the development of the story of Jesus Christ. That uh, uh, moment has been coming for some time in Luke's Gospel. Remember, this is a Gospel written to a specific person, to respectable, sophisticated, Oxbridge-educated, professionally qualified, comfy, home-owning, pillar of society, Theophilus. And Luke has laid it on the line to Theophilus again and again. He recorded how Mary sang as she discovered she was to give birth to Jesus about God raising up the humble, putting down those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. We've seen how God announced to the, the birth of Jesus to shepherds on a hillside while Caesar Augustus in his palace thought he was in control and was actually God's pawn and knew nothing about what was going on. Thousands of angels were rejoicing before humble shepherds and they were hearing that God had sent his son. We've seen how um, Luke carefully records that Jesus announced his manifesto in, in specific terms. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, said Jesus. If this gospel is to be for you, Theophilus, says Luke, you must surrender your traditional Roman pride. You must stand alongside the shepherds if you want to hear the angels. You must stand alongside Mary if you want to be honoured. Jesus is not interested in people who think they are great. He is interested in rescuing people who know they are poor, blind, wretched and in desperate need of his life-giving, liberating, joy-producing help. He's been teaching as, uh, um, <coughs> as he's gone on about the forgiveness and abundance that he offers to Peter as he catches an abundant catch of fish and then is filled with fear because he's a sinful man and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Or as Levi, Levi uh, throws a great big party and then the Pharisees who are sneering um, at Levi are told, actually, Dr. Jesus has come for sick people. Those who think they need not, uh, they're not sick may not wait in his waiting room. He will not see them. Or uh, Jesus has been... Uh, putting it again very, very clearly to Simon the Pharisee, respectable Simon, who had a woman come into his front room, weeping all over Jesus' feet. Simon looked down at her and Jesus for associating with her. 
and Jesus picks her up, presents her to him and says, Simon, she loves much because she was forgiven much. Now how much do you love me, Simon? So now it's crunch time. That's how the story has been developing and now it all comes together in this uh, one little story um, which we're going to look at. We're not going to have a chance actually to look at the transfiguration where Jesus revealed his glory shining brightly there before the disciples. We're just going to have time to look at the little story before that. And the first thing that... uh, Uh, happens in this crunch moment is that they clarify who Jesus is. Verse 18 of chapter 9 When Jesus was praying in private his disciples were with him and he asked them who do the crowds say that I am? When Jesus is praying in Luke it is often signalling that something important is about to happen and Jesus introduces this something important by inviting them to report on the public speculation about him. Who do they say I am, he says. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life, they reply. And all of that speculation focuses on Jesus as a messenger from God, do you see? As a prophet. Someone like Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. Actually, just as popular opinion does today, virtually everyone in the street will tell you Jesus was a great teacher, had wonderful prophetic insights. But that's not the point. That's not the key thing that Peter has seen. Verse 20. What about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Peter has come to a vital conclusion. In the Old Testament, the the Christ was a figure who would one day come and defeat all of God's enemies. So in other words, Peter's saying, I see that you're not just someone who's a great messenger. Great messenger though you may be and wonderful teaching though you may give. I see that you're someone more than that. You're someone who's going to not only bring a message of God's victory, you're going to do something about it. You're going to achieve it. You're going to bring it about. You're the Christ. Peter hasn't seen the half of it yet, frankly. He hasn't seen, actually, that Jesus was going to def- is going to defeat all evil everywhere in the whole of God's creation. He hasn't seen that Jesus is actually, by his work, great work, uh, one day going to uh, judge everybody who has ever existed in all of history, the living and the dead, and then he is going to create a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be no sin, no evil, no mourning, not even death, says the New Testament. A place in which the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, says the Bible. He hasn't seen how great Jesus' victory is going to be, which we have seen. 
Because we have seen that Jesus even defeated death, that Jesus rose to life and lives eternally, that Jesus promised absolutely that he will one day restore his whole creation and evil will be no more. He hasn't seen it all. But he's seen enough for it to be a vital moment, a crunch moment. You're the Christ. You're not just the messenger, you're the message. The one who's come to do what God promised said he would do. Jesus then needs to explain and expand that on the second crunch issue. Who is Jesus? He is God's great victor. What must Jesus do then? The second crunch issue. Verse 22. He warned them, the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This actually is now going to be the the driving force of Luke's story of Jesus from this moment. In chapter 9, verse 51, we're going to see Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem where he knows he will die. And we will see Jesus repeatedly asserting this is something he must do. Luke 13:33. I must keep going, he says, because he must die in Jerusalem. Luke 17:25. He says he must suffer many things and be rejected. And then perhaps with the greatest clarity, Luke 22, verse 37. And Jesus says that Isaiah's prediction of a suffering and dying servant who was numbered amongst the transgressors must be fulfilled in him. He must die. Not as the sad termination to a promising ministry but as the culmination of that ministry because he must take the sins of his people on his own shoulders. He must take the consequences for us, if we are Christians, on himself. He must die. That is how Christ will win his victory. Because the key victory he needs to win is against Satan the accuser. Satan, who until Jesus died on the cross actually had a hold on God, he could come to God and he could say about me, look at Peter's sins, God. How could you possibly forgive him? How could you possibly um, raise him to life and put him in that new heaven and that new earth? Look at his sins. But actually after Jesus had died, God finally had a reply. Yes, I am just, he can say back. I will never leave any sin unpunished. But I punished Peter's in my son. 
I punished his, hers, theirs, in my son. Those are two absolutely crunch issues in Luke's Gospel and they've come to a head here. Theophilus? Will you accept that I'm not just a messenger, I'm not just someone, another prophet for you to read and uh, glean your bit of wisdom as a wise, educated man. Will you accept that actually I am the person who wins the only victory that is worth talking about? The eternal victory that will save your life, Theophilus. That's what Jesus is saying to him. And will you accept, Theophilus, that actually my death on the cross for your sins was what won that victory? I know it's humbling, Theophilus, because you have to accept that you are a sinner and that you can do nothing about it. But that's the crunch issue. However, there's a third crunch issue that is here. A third vital issue that we must take on board. This uh, um, third crunch issue is found uh, in verses 23 and following. This third crunch issue is about how we live. If we want to live as followers of Jesus Christ, we must live like Jesus Christ. That's what uh, Jesus says to us and that's what Luke um, wants to say to Theophilus. Verse 23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. it, it It is difficult for us to get into our minds, I think. Quite how shocking that uh, statement is actually to anyone in the first century world but particularly to uh, Theophilus. Let, let, me, let me try to do that. Um, and the reason why it was particularly offensive to Theophilus is because what taking up your cross meant. Crucifixion in uh, the Roman world was a very common practice. It was practised all over the place but it was practised on foreigners, marginal people, slaves in particular, very, very rarely on Roman citizens. So when Theophilus, this Roman citizen, this this respected Roman person, is um, uh, hearing that, that is what he's hearing. 
endure something that no normal Roman citizen would ever have to endure. Just to try and get that into your head, just imagine um, for a moment with me that um, the law was changed in this, uh, in this country uh, regarding uh, sex offenders, registered sex offenders and they could no longer keep it secret. In fact, they had to be tattooed on their forehead with sex offender across it and had to live then publicly in society with people despising them, people occasionally attacking them, no doubt, with the shame of it. And now imagine that Jesus is saying to us, uh, us, every day, paint on your forehead sex offender before you go out. That's the degree of shame that there was associated with the cross, associated with someone carrying the cross on their shoulders. Jesus did it once as they laughed at him and mocked him and nailed him to the cross and killed him. But Jesus is saying to his followers, you must take that reviled status on yourself daily, voluntarily. You know, we have brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters in the world for whom that is a reality. Their lives are not safe. But that is so many miles from our world. And yet, that is what Jesus is calling us to do. And not actually... um, Uh, not at all saying that we are to embrace some terrible, cruel, miserable life sentence. He's actually saying, in the following verses, um, to live like that is a path of extraordinary joy. He uh, He says three things to make that point to us. First he says, this is the path of true life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me, he says, will save it. In other words, there is a law built into the fabric of the universe that people who, who live their lives only for now, for this life, for themselves, end up being massive losers. And actually only those who who, who, who who hand over their lives, who lose their life in one sense, end up being winners. In fact, they end up ga- gaining life itself. That's what he's saying. Cross-bearing is the path to life, he says. Or uh, and the second uh, argument he makes is that uh, this 
uh, lifestyle that he's just described is the path to gain as well. Verse 25, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? He says, you know the ridiculous motto, he who dies with the most toys wins. I think uh, the humorous value of that is because nobody really believes it. Indeed, it, uh, it, it brings out and mocks the foolishness of people who spend their time gathering the most toys. Ancient Egyptian kings may have optimistically filled their burial chambers with treasures. Mighty Viking warriors may have had themselves buried in whole long ships. But the first Chinese emperor may have had himself interred with 8,000 life-size terracotta models of their warriors and horses but actually one thing virtually everyone agrees to on today is that at death we don't take our treasures. We don't need modes of transport. We have no army to defend us. We are stripped, we are defenceless, we are naked when we die. When I face death, All that there is will be me. Everything else that I have accumulated in my life I will have either voluntarily given up or God will have prized out of my grip one finger at a time. And there will just be me. And if at that moment, you see, I, I look at myself and I realise that I have nothing to look at, that actually there was only a shell adorned with bright baubles but containing nothing, I'm a loser. What use is it if I gain the whole world and lose or forfeit my very self? Cross-bearing, says Jesus, is the path to gain. To gain everything. Oh yes, he says, and there's something else um, that you need to know. This, he says, is the path to honour as well, verse 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father of the, uh, and of the holy angels. God is going to come one day with the most extraordinary honour, the most extraordinary glory. And he is going to look around for those who can share in that honour, who can share in that glory, who can, whom, to whom he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share in your father's joy. And uh, on that day, 
he will find lots of people who preferred a more temporary, fragile form of glory. Who would rather be respected in, uh, uh, in this world than actually bear the cross, embrace the shame that he says comes and wait for honour in his presence. I, I vividly remember having dinner when I was an undergraduate uh, with one of my um, uh, university lecturers. She invited me out um, for uh, uh, a meal and um, uh, we were chatting and she eventually said, I don't mind most Christians but it's the born again ones that I hate. And to my shame I kept my mouth shut. Because I was just too dazzled by being taken out by someone with a few letters after her name. To actually own up to the fact that I was a born again one. And if that becomes a life pattern, then we have in fact, only to look forward to Jesus' shame, being ashamed of us. You know, the uh, title Christian was initially a sneering term. These are Christ's ones, the pathetic ones. Christians donned it as a badge of honour. Yeah, we are Christ ones. We're glad you noticed. Cross-bearing is the path to honour. It is the path to life. It is the path to gain. It is the path to honour. It is the path to the only real joy and satisfaction and wholeness and completeness and even humanness that we will ever, ever find. And here is the crunch. Will we do it? I I fear that uh, that churches are full of people who um, recognise Jesus as the Son of God and the uh, and the, the Christ. Full of people actually who recognise that Jesus needed to die on the cross for uh, my sins so that he could win his great victory. And not very full of people who are prepared to say with their whole life and everything that they are, Therefore, I'm going to live for him. Therefore, I'm going to hand my life over to him because actually he'll give me back infinitely more than I ever gave to him. Indeed, if I clasped it to myself, I would find it just sort of disappeared through my arms like trying to hold so much sand. 
Therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the real gain, the big gain. I'm going to be really ambitious with my life. And that means um, just enough of this world to keep me going and to fulfil the, the, uh, uh, what I need to fulfil in, in this world, what God has called me to do. But my focus, my aim, is to be the person that God has called me to be. Not to be a shell, but to be me. To find out what, God, what gifts God has given to me. To think through what opportunities I have in my life. And to live the way my Creator made me to live. For His glory. So that on that day when everything else is stripped off, there's something beautiful there. I'm going to be really, really ambitious for honour. I don't like shame. But the shame I really don't want is the shame of hanging my head before Jesus Christ on the last day. When he is so glorious and so extraordinary and so magnificent. And those ways in which I betrayed him look so dirty and miserable. I'm going to go for the big one. And I'm not going to worry about the little bits of shame that come to me day by day. Let me, let me be, let me be um, even more specific. Um, some of us here are older. We know death is not that far off. Um, been in the church for a long, long time. When I first came, there was a there was a sense of exhaustion amongst a lot of people, a lot of the longer term people. And as new people started coming in, a, a, a lot of uh, longer term people. Sigh a sigh of relief. It was, it was great. Let, let the others take it on. And I understand that entirely. But actually we never retire from serving God. We never retire from that challenge to take up our cross daily. And actually, as um, um, the day of judgment approaches for us all, shouldn't we be even more eager to invest in those things? You may not have the energy uh, you once did. But some, actually, who've been uh, around for a long time are living and working sacrificially for Christ every day. Let it be all of us. Or uh, let me be specific about those at my stage of life with children to worry about and, and, uh, and mortgages and... Um, and, and, and demanding jobs. You know, there is a phenomenon in this country and uh, it doesn't, it's not confined to any particular church tradition or, or, um, or whatever. It's, I don't think it's a factor of churches, it's a factor of our culture. Men in the age group 30 to 50 fall off the radar as far as, as, as uh, Christian leadership is concerned. Because life is so busy. 
life is so filled with, with, with children and uh, work and, and uh, all of those other things that just absorb all of our attention, you know, and some of that is just unavoidable and absolutely inevitable. But is there a little bit too much of me just getting caught up a little bit with the idea that I could gain the world here? I'm quite enjoying this life I've got. I don't want to give it away. I actually quite enjoy the respect that I have in society now. Now there's a bit too much cost now with me accepting shame. Too many of those... uh, Uh, men actually disappear off the radar forever can't afford to have a 20 year gap in our daily cross bearing Christian lives well let me be very specific to younger people here actually um, uh, it is easier in some ways say, yes, I'll do it. I'll go for it. But Jesus is absolutely clear, we must take up that cross daily. Not just now and tomorrow, but the next day and the next year and the next decade. And it is time perhaps, as younger people, to start to assess our lives, to make key decisions, to set in place key patterns of life that will enable us and empower us to live lives like that. And let me say for this church as well, if we don't stand for this sort of lifestyle, we stand for nothing that is worth having. And I know that is tough. And I know that we've got a lot to learn. It is not about actually being perfect and having arrived. It is about seeing that call of Jesus and saying, yes Lord, I want you to do that in my life. Please help me. Please help me see that that is the real, the only real life worth having. Please help me see that that is how I find myself, how I gain my very self. Please help me see that that gives me honour, that, uh, that, that knocks into a cocked hat any of the shame that I might, might, might get anywhere else. Please help me see that so that I can live it. I think we've got a long way to go. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is patient. If we are prepared to um, set out on that path, to walk that path, he will encourage us. But let me ask a sharp question of us as a church. Surely um, that sort of lifestyle, taking up our cross daily, will mean that we are talking about Christ in our lives a lot. 
with our non-Christian friends. We have a wine tasting evening just this week. Very low cringe, very easy to invite our friends. Why haven't we invited 100, 200 friends together? We have a mission coming up in the, in, in the new year where, where, which will focus us and encourage us in our, in our evangelism. Will we fill those events? Theophilus, you see, was almost certainly leading a pretty comfortable life at the heart of his community, respected, wealthy, and everything in his world told him he had life, he had great gain, he had honour. And Jesus says, no, no. No. You will only find those things if you take up your cross daily and live recognisably as a follower of Jesus.